Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. You can check out new episodes of the show every Tuesday and Thursday at 2 p.m. If you missed an episode or want to get more information about the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Brian Smith. He's the founder of UGG, a passionate innovator, an author, and keynote speaker. Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. Um, like we were, I was just telling you, I, I just kind of read your book cover to cover. I finished oh, it a couple well of days done. ago, <laughs> just in time for this. And, and you know, like it was one of the few books that I've, that I've read that truly talks about the good and bad of being an entrepreneur oh, yeah. and kind of the struggle and how hard it is and how time consuming it is. And so, but before we kind of get into kind of the book and kind of, you know, starting UGG right. from, from nothing to something, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with kind of where you grew sure, up. Sure, I grew up in Australia, a city called Canberra, and, uh, and you know, just had a pretty normal childhood and ended up becoming an accountant uh, out of uh, high school. And instead of going to college, I decided to become a chartered accountant and which is like a CPA in the US and uh, sure. ended up just hating it <laughs> and, but I never <laughs> but, but I never quit on things and so I I struggled through for 10 years uh, until I graduated and when I graduated that's the day I quit and uh, <laughs> and I'd always I'd, I'd always had this sort of desire to do something for myself you know i'd seen a lot of my friends who sure. started their own businesses and i certainly didn't want to just work in an accounting office and become a partner or something so so i was just hunting around for you know what to do what to do and and it suddenly struck me well damn all of the biggest trends in australia have come from california so i just decided damn i'm going to go to california i'm going to find the next big thing and I'm going to bring it back home and uh, that's amazing. yeah and so I you know within a couple of weeks I booked a ticket and I went uh, across to Los Angeles with my surfboard and my suitcase and set up in Santa Monica there and and took you know a month of surfing in Malibu and you know no big idea and another month of surfing Malibu no big idea and then it was in the third month I was, you know, flicking through this surf magazine and I saw an advertisement for sheepskin boots and I went, oh my God, there are no sheepskin boots in America. And at, at the time, <laughs> one in two Australians had some sort of sheepskin footwear, you know? So I just thought, instant sure. millionaire, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, we, we all, we've all been through that. Uh, sure, so, sure. Um, I called up the the factory in Australia who'd run this ad and arranged to be the distributor and bought some samples in, thinking that I was going to be like the you know, the next richest person on the planet, you know. So, so, so that's sure. how simple the start of UGG was. It wasn't any great rocket science. It was strictly me, you know, sort of like Christopher Columbus bringing tobacco back because it was not here. You know, and uh, <laughs> I brought sheepskin boots to America because they weren't here. It was pretty simple. Sure. So, uh, obviously, 
pretty much everybody at this point, globally, or at least in most countries, have heard of, probably own a pair of uh, right. boots or, you know, know somebody that does, right? But I'm kind of curious to dive a bit deeper into kind of the journey. You wrote a book called The Birth of a Brand right. about kind of that journey. Uh -huh. So can you walk kind of me and the audience through kind of the early days and kind of the the struggles of that stuff? Because I, I think the, the one thing that I really enjoyed about the book is obviously everybody kind of knows the outcome, but you were brutally honest about, you know, kind of how hard it can be or like cash flow issues sure. or having a seasonal product sure. or, or that kind of thing. So I'm curious to know, walk, walk kind of me and the listener through that kind of journey that you took, especially kind of maybe starting with the early yeah, days of okay. actually, you I, know, Getting these yeah, the things. early days are the best place to start that because, you know, uh, thinking I was going to be such a hit, uh, I started going to, to the shoe stores and, and got shut out. They didn't even understand. They're going, sheepskin in California? You're crazy. You know? <laughs> and and, and sure. so I, I realized, though, that all the, the surfers who had been to Australia knew about them. So I started selling into the surf shops and the surf market as, as our first adopters. And, and sure. you know, when I had the samples, I went to all the shops and they go, oh, my God, fantastic. You're going to make a fortune. Yeah? So I was so elated that I bought 500 pairs. You know, I, I arranged for a, a small investor to come in and uh, bought 500 pairs from Australia. And they arrived. And so I went back to all the surf shops and they, they were going, oh, my God, you're going to be great. But, you know, we couldn't sell them out of our store. We just sell surfboards and trunks and sandals. You know, you, you, know, you, you should go to the shoe stores. And, and so after this huge, you know, feeling that I was going to be uh, hugely successful, the first season sales was 28 pairs into the surf shops. Sure. And, you know, that happened to, happened wow. to be exactly $1,000. And that was so disappointing. I mean, I, I was just staggered that I, I had you know, another 480 pairs left in my warehouse, you know, and it, or, which sure. my warehouse was my third bedroom. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but the funny thing is, after looking back years later, and, and the, the reason I wrote the book is the theme that I've discovered that you can't give birth to adults. Every every sure. single. Uh, business that's listed on the Wall Street Journal stock exchange, you know, New York Stock Exchange page, every single one of those companies had to start out with $1,000 or somewhere around it. Um, and sure. and the theme of the book is that every every product or service or movement is conceived and then an action is taken and that's the birth. So for the birth of bug, it was buying in those samples. And then it, every business or movement just goes into this infancy and it just lies there and lies there and lies there. And there's no amount of feeding it or urging it. This infant can't get up and go to college. It has to be an infant. Now, in entrepreneurial terms, that's where most entrepreneurs give up. They, they've had their aha idea. They've worked like crazy to bring it to market. And then it just sits there and they think they failed because it doesn't sure. seem to be doing anything and if you can hang in through that infancy it'll start toddling and that's when the first adopters are picking up your product and you're getting articles written about it and that'll pretty quickly go into the youth where you've got consistent orders 
and consistent production and the accounting and billing is working. The sales force is great. The warehouse is perfect. You know, that is the best phase for every business. And you can stay you're up to a $20 million business in that phase. But if it's a really, really good product or service like, like Agua's, it'll hit the teenage years and it'll want to be everywhere at once you know just remember when we were teenagers you want to be at every party in town sure. well you want to be at every trade yep. show you want to be on every retail shelf and it's super super dangerous because you just don't have the financial capacity to handle it or the maturity to handle it and so it's super dangerous phase but eventually it'll mature and the you know accountants put all the controls in and it becomes a, a sort of a steady old business so that was what i got from the you know, selling 28 pairs is that I got a really good, hard wake-up call on, you know, just, just how difficult a business can be um, and what can happen if you don't give up, you know? Sure. Well, I, and I think the thing, too, that I really took from the book was you basically were selling and constantly selling and, and driving, at least in the early years, up and down kind of California. Yeah going to all these places and shops and then eventually you kind of expanded east and you started flying around to different places and and trying to sell and doing the trade shows kind of across north america and whatnot but i think the thing that i think a lot of people maybe don't realize is you did that for years and pretty much the entire time before you sold uh, yeah yeah i was like you know the the profit in the wilderness preaching the, 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 the wisdom of sheepskin boots. <laughs> and, and the sure. first three years I, I was, you know, doing summer jobs all year because it certainly didn't sustain me. You know, I was, I was washing boats in Marina del Rey and I was construction up in Bel Air, you know, Los Angeles. And the, the third sure. year I was a greenskeeper on a golf course, you know, just, just to keep paying the bills. And, and many times I wanted to give up the UG business because it just didn't seem to be working. You know, it was such a slow adoption. But when I, the, the big breakthrough came when I, I'd been running these ads in Surfer Magazine and Action Sports Retailer Magazine of these models on the beach. And it was getting nowhere. And, and I was trying to explain this to a buddy of mine who owned a surf shop. And he just said, oh, shut up, Brian. And he called all these little kids out from the back room and says, Hey, you guys, what do you think of Ugg boots? And they all just went, oh, those Uggs, man, they're so fake. Have you seen the ads, those models? They can't surf. And I instantly realized <laughs> I'm sending the wrong message to my target market. And so sure. I instantly pivoted like every entrepreneur has to. And uh, I started using these young pro surfers these kids had just turned pro so they were really cheap you know and i i sure. photographed them um on just going to the going surfing it there's there's a spot called trestles up in san onofre and uh, black's beach here in la jolla mm-hmm. and these are iconic walks i mean if you ever surf there you, you know that you know the walks are miles to, to get to the beach and and I photographed these things and ran the ads in Surfer Magazine the next year. The sales went to 200,000 just like instantly. And I realized then the power of putting the reader into the advertisement that you you had to make it so enticing that the reader wanted to be in the ad. And every little kid would 
die to be walking to Trestles or Black Speech with Mike Parsons or Ted Robinson, you know, these young surfers. And that when I realized that, that sort of opened my eyes and, and I ended up falling passionately in love with marketing. And I duplicated that into skiing and snowboarding. And then, you know, I, as we were growing, I was trying to get back east and they would go, oh, no, we have mud and slush and, and they'll never work over here. And so I had to figure out, well, what do the kids do in the winter? And it hit me, they, you know, eventually they, they all play hockey. And that, me- that sure. meant they have to change shoes at the hockey rink and their moms come and watch. So the moms are sitting in a 40-degree room, you know, um, freezing. So, yep. so it just was a matter of hanging in there and 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 that process i just described took like six years to do and and i was always even when i started off myself on the road but then as we got sales reps i would start traveling with them and in in the 16 or 15 or 16 years that i was doing a lot of traveling i i racked up over two million frequent flyer miles on on american on american airlines just traveling with the sales reps all over the country and all, all different parts of the country. So it was, it was very much a, a hands-on thing. And I just had so much passion for the brand and the product itself that it was, it, it, it was a job, but it was fun. You know, I never, I never looked at it sure. as work. The, the other thing that I thought was really interesting is how you had to convince people to basically try the shoes on or the boots on without socks that's, that's so great. <laughs> walk the listener through that yeah well when you look at the product you know let's say you're a, a, a guy in minnesota okay and uh you sure. know we wear sorrels and they're rubber and they're warm and you know we we take them off when we get to the door uh and and but every time we go outside that's the boot for us yeah so you got this mindset right now, you, you match that up. Sure. on. Let, let's say you go to the retail shelf and you see a Sorel sitting next to an Ugg, but it, it's not even a comparison, you know. The Ugg, in sure. their minds, the Ugg was so delicate and soft and you can't get it wet, you can't get it dirty, uh, and it's hot and smelly and prickly. So that's the American consumer's view of sheepskin. But in Australia, sure. we know that it's rugged. I mean, you cannot rip a, a piece of sheepskin. It is so tough, and it is insulating. So you can be in a hundred, you know, a minus twenty degrees with no socks on, and your feet have stayed put temperature. But you can be in a hundred degrees temperature, and your foot still stays at foot temperature because there's no, there's such an amount of wicking like um, through all the all the fibers, um, and you and you can sure. get it wet, and it, it's the only material that will retain its warmth when it's wet so you can be you can be sitting in a pair of slopping wet sheepskin boots and your feet will stay warm so it's all these amazing characteristics that americans didn't know and finally you know in frustration when i'd I'd be at a trade show and and you know some woman would come back from chicago you know and i'd say hey these are perfect for chicago oh no we have mud and slice and i'd say you know come here take your shock shock off put this on and I would hear oh my god and I, I heard that saying thousands and thousands and thousands of times while I was building <laughs> the business because when they put them on with bare feet they are so sensual and and 
and just inviting that they would just buy boots on the spot for their, you know, for their stores. And so it, it was really, really critical in those early days to get people to try them on. Uh, after a while, when it became a fashion item and Hollywood took off, nobody cared anymore. It was all about the look. Um, but back sure. in those early days, man, it was a battle trying to get people to buy uh, because of that misperception of how bad sheepskin or how hot sheepskin is. Sure. No, totally. The And the other thing, too, that you, you had to deal with throughout kind of the whole kind of birth and kind of even coming into kind of the mainstream was you had a lot of kind of competitors and knockoff brands and you guys always seem to kind of stay ahead of them, you know, with color and style yeah. and, 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 but kind of walk the listener through kind of how you dealt with yeah, that. Because I think that, a lot of people keep that, going. That sorry. was a deliberate thing on our part. We, 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 after a couple of years, we started to get other Australian companies bringing product in and, you know, I'd registered the UG trademark by now and, uh, we were protecting that pretty strongly, but there were still other boots <coughs> coming in. And uh, the when we realized as 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 we started growing, you know, you know, especially when we hit that two hundred thousand year, that's when a whole bunch of others jumped in, thinking it was easy money. Uh, we realized sure. because you you can't patent the design of a shoe, or you know, especially a sheepskin shoe, and so. Sure. We realized that the only way to win was to get out front and then run faster. Okay. Sure. And, but, it, but I think the... Oh, yeah, going, what, what that meant was that we'd introduce all of, all of our products at a trade show, right? And that, that's, okay. us, that's yep. usually in February, March, April. And then, so you'd come to the shipping season in, in September, October, November, and all the other people would would not have had time to, to copy those. Uh, so we'd, we'd have a free right. season to, to with all of our new product out there. But at the next trade show, all of these knockoffs would have come in copying what we did last year. So sure. we had to have new products. And so every season, we were always one season ahead of them all. And that was the genius of the marketing, you know, the, or the product development was that, you know, w what we had on, on show right now was just for now. We were already planning next season's product in the back room, you know. <laughs> so that, that's, what, sure, that's no, what I mean by get out front first and run faster. It, it's the only way to survive. Sure. So walk us through kind of the struggle of being a seasonal product and trying to generate enough sales in a, in a short, you know, kind of window of time to kind of survive till the next year to kind of reorder and because part of the thing that I think a lot of people don't realize and I would put myself in that is you have you have to have obviously like orders and then you have to have inventory to obviously to supply those orders but you also need to have money and capital laying around to actually like place some of those orders right and you might not have yeah well now, the actual yeah, orders to fill right. right now now in hindsight it's pretty damn obvious but as an entrepreneur going into it i i was an accountant like i said um and i knew profit and loss you know and i knew if i if i sure. doubled the sales and you know i'd have double the profit and 
that doesn't work in business because you're, you're absolutely right. I had, even though I was an accountant, I had almost no knowledge of finance. And okay, yeah, interesting. And so, and this is back before the, all these new computer spreadsheets where you put all your forecasts in and it spits out a cash flow statement. So I, I was ignorant sure. about that. And so, um, we'd, we'd be, let's say we just did a million dollars and, 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 we, and we're broke, right? It's the trade show season coming up in sure. February, March, April. I've, I've spent all the profits from the previous winter on new samples and booking the trade shows and bringing all the sales reps in and, and was broke again in, in February, March. So how, how the hell am I going to survive till next September, you know? Let, let alone where sure. am I going to find the money to bring the boots in. So, so what I really, really wish I had have known at that time was doubling sales doubles your headaches. It, it does not double yep. your profit <laughs> because now, with, let's say you go from one million to two million, now you've got to find the money to bring in enough product to satisfy two million in sales you know that there's a million bucks right there and and sure. then you've got all your overheads because now you've got more staff and more shipping and more you know bigger warehouse to handle it all your expenses go up and so uh, looking back now the the one thing i really wish i had have known about uh in the business was finance but you know in you probably recall from my book that one of the key ingredients in being an entrepreneur is a certain level of ignorance. Because sure. if I had known all of the problems the seasonality would have caused and all of the problems, you know, having expensive inventory and, and, and you know, just because we're in shoes, we never know what size foot's coming through the door, right? So to, to sure. sell a pair of nines, we have to be prepared with size 5 through 12. So there's you know there's right. ten units just to sell one, you know that's a horrific problem. Right. And and if I hadn't known that, I probably wouldn't have started. And if I hadn't known that I had to you know pay my product up front and then bring it in and then give it out to these retailers who didn't pay for thirty or sixty days, I probably would never have started again. You know. So so the beauty of it, yeah, you know, every entrepreneur needs a certain level of ignorance or or nothing to get done. Sure. No, I, I think that's really great. And you also kind of brought on a bunch of different kind of partners and people to finance and you kind of started different kind of brands to fund this and stuff. Walk me through kind of the journey of just kind of make, bringing on people and kind of almost a little bit of right place, right time or a bit of luck or I, I don't know because it seemed like Sometimes you you almost quit, and then you'd get a phone call. Yeah, and you'd be back in business, yeah, so, you know, kind of thing. So walk me through that kind of. Yeah, journey. well, the the financings were not well thought through again because I said I didn't understand it, um, and they they sure. were more acts of uh, necessity. Um, like I'd be finishing up a trade show in March, and I go, oh my god, you know, I've just written eight hundred thousand in sales. I don't have that money to buy product. And so I would start April, May, June, July, August, trying to find an investor. And even after five or six years, or even after eight years, the banks were just telling me, oh, 
Brian Uggs, this you know they're such a fad. They won't be around next year. We're not going to bankroll that. And so no investor was willing to to step up to the plate. And so I was always relying on you know just these random people I would meet who who were, were interested. And but but I never had a financial plan set in place. So I was always at, at the uh, you know, I, I usually have to buy out the previous investor because we, you know, he didn't have the capacity to, to take it to the next level. So to to get the next investor in, they didn't want the old investor in, so I'd have to buy the old one out. And then it was just like this series of financings that were not good financings. Uh, they weren't. They were. They were adequate for the time, but they weren't uh, put together with any sense of foresight. You know, and. And right. so there was, yeah, this one time that uh, I'd uh, <coughs> sold um, some see these three guys to come in and uh, bankroll the company, and I'd bought the old guy, the old person out, and we were going to share the company twenty five percent each. But there was this, there was sure. this little proviso that I, I didn't get my twenty five percent of stock actually issued until I finished up a trademark lawsuit that I was involved in. And I didn't care because I, I knew I'd, I'd win that. And I was also the sales rep, you know, so uh, for the company. So, you know, we, we, we moved all the warehouse up to Anaheim where these new investors were. And I was out on the road, the, you know, the very, very next day. And, and my, one of my customers goes, hey, Brian, I heard you sold the business. And I went, what? He said, yeah, I, I, they, you know, I called an order in. They said, you don't own it anymore. And I said, what? You're kidding me. And, you know, I, I called up the office later and, and said, what the hell are you telling people? He said, well, you don't, you know, you're not an owner. I said, yes, I am. You're my three new, new partners. And they go, well, no, technically you don't have any stock until you finish that. You know, and wow, I went into this huge depression. And uh, Sure. And, you know, I uh, ended up for three days pretty much moping about, not knowing what to do. And eventually I, I you know, meditated a bit and said, okay, well, what am I going to do? And and the bottom line was I, I decided I really love selling, you know, now. And so I went back up and sure. said, okay, I may not own the company, but I'm going to make sure I uh, – you know, make sure I get a pair of Ugg boots on everybody's foot in in in, the, in America, and so I started out being a sales rep. And and after the first month, you know, I got back to the office, and Neil, you know, one of the guys, hands me a check for five thousand bucks. Is that your commissions? And I went, Are you kidding me? I've never earned any money. This is the first money I've pulled out of the business ever. And the, the, the next month I came back, there's another check for 10 grand and, that, and the next month, another check for 10 grand. And I realized, you know, that, oh my God, I'm out there having a ball with all my retailers. I'm not doing any purchasing or shipping or accounting. And I just love what I'm doing. And, you know, the, it, it turned out to, you know, that one of the things in my book is, is sometimes your greatest disappointments become your greatest blessing. And, Sure. And I look back at, at, at you know how disappointed I was to realize that I you know wasn't an owner, and yet how much fun I was having you know by not being an owner still in the same business. But but let's fast forward a few years. Um, 
You know, sure. I, I spent the next two or three years on the road just making a ton of money, you know, 120, 140,000 a year and, or, or per season and just having golfing and surfing with all my customers. It was a brilliant life and not doing any of the work. And then in the meantime, Neil had brought the other two guys out. So he owned all seven, you know, all a hundred percent of it. And, and he said, come on, Brian, we, we're going to issue your, your stock for, you know, and so finally I was going to get my 25% back. And the week before we arranged to, to do it, he had this huge heart attack and died. <laughs> so I, yeah, you know, that was kind of shocking yeah. to me. So here, I was like, I didn't see that yeah, coming. Here I was like on top of heaven, you know, and suddenly the whole earth kicked out from under me again. So I spent this sure. nightmare nine months like his widow had never been in the never set foot in the in the warehouse so she had no idea what was going on and so i had to step back in and become a forensic accountant and try and figure out where everything was and the bottom line during that season my my manufacturer didn't think i was going to be able to pull it off uh and save the business so he didn't tell me but he found another distributor to start selling uh, his product and didn't realize he wasn't going to ship me. And, you know, he, he didn't tell me he wasn't because he thought maybe I, I would be able to get some financing. And so, you know, come August, July, August, I'm realizing, you know, he's not giving me any help at all. I'd better look for another manufacturer. So I, I went down to Australia and, you know, tried to find it. This, this big tannery was really interested at first, but they, they would never commit. So I, uh, you know, came back to California. It's now August, September. We're getting, you know, we should be shipping and I still haven't got the production. So going, and yet I've got like $3 million worth of orders. You know, it was the most insane thing. That whole year while I was trying to save the business, the sales were going fantastic out on the road with the reps but I couldn't get the money to finance. So anyway, the, the bottom line is that this big trade show came up and, and I decided to go anyway, even, you know, this is one of those entrepreneurial things. You, you, you never defeat it until the moment you give up. Right. And, and sure, so sure. I, I wasn't ready to admit defeat yet, even though I knew, had no idea how I was going to do it. So we went to the trade show and when I got there, I, looked across and uh, this competitor's booth in the, on, the, on the other side of the convention center and there was all of my product with different labels and it was a, a company that my supplier had teamed up with and that was the first time I actually knew that my supplier had abandoned me and so I you know we finished the show and I, I realized we're going to have to go out of business and I called my wife and told her that, you know, next Monday we'll start calling everybody and tell them to buy this other product. And the last call I made was back to the tannery in Australia. You know, the guy I'd been negotiating with and I said, Hey, you know, Gordon, I'm sorry, you know, for all the time I took out of your life, you know, but we're going to have to shut it down. This is what my supplier's done. And, and we hung up and, and then like, at two o'clock in the morning, he calls back <laughs> and says, Brian, screw that guy. I'll get you all the product you need, you know? And like without a handshake or without a contract or anything, we went into business and he started sending product to me. <laughs> and it got to be like 5,000 pairs a week, you know? And as soon as they hit, 
the you know our warehouse the you know, all the retailers were so so you know scarce that they would drive down and pick up their product rather than wait for UPS to deliver it you know and <laughs> and so we ended up salvaging we stayed alive that season we threw away over a million dollars worth of wholesale orders because we didn't get enough enough wow. product in but the thing is we were alive and sure? and and then on top of that when when Neil had died, right before he died, you know, we, when I was going to be coming into the company, we, we got life insurance policies on each other, and uh, yeah, and after all that time, we you know we salvaged the season and the life insurance policy paid out, and it was just enough money to buy the company back one hundred percent from his widow. So here I here I was, you know, out of business. One month, like in September, and by November, I own sure. 100% of the company again. It was just like insane. Wow. Yeah, right? I mean, and that's the beauty of being an entrepreneur. And that's why I love the chaos of, 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 of <laughs> you know, entrepreneurialism. Is that you you sure. never know what's coming around the corner. And that was just a so, fantastic example. No, totally. So just just to be clear – how many years had you been in business at, you know, to the story you just kind of mentioned where you literally called Gordon and were like, I'm done, yeah. dude. Like, I can't that, do that, this. Like, how many years were you in? That was about seven years. And, and you know. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we'd been to, we were up to about three three million in sales, you know, um, when when that transaction happened. So it wasn't a small business. It wasn't, a, it was one of those situations where you're too big to be small and you're too small to be big. <laughs> just, you're in no sure, man's sure. land, you know. You can't afford a full-time staff, but you, you desperately need one. It's one of those crazy situations. But but that was another case of, you know, the, the uh, you know, your, your most disappointing disappointments become your greatest blessings, you know. I look back now and think, you know, how lucky was I that... Uh, you know, the situation transpired that way where I'd own the company again. Sure. No, that's, that's, an, that's amazing. So kind of walk me through kind of how you, you know, kind of the next few years and kind of you finally deciding to sell the company. Yeah, well, the, the sales grew, you know, three, five, seven, nine million. And when we got up around 10 million, this is now let's say 13 or 14 years into the business. Yeah, about that. And uh, I decided that I wanted, you know, we, we were really big in, in surfing. We were really big in skiing. We were huge in snowboarding. We were big in ice hockey back east. But there were all these fragmented markets. And I wanted to try and build the brand into a, a, a single statement so i came up with the idea of casual comfort and this was going to launch beyond all those little niche surfing type things and i knew the only way to launch this was to do a a really really slick public relations campaign so i hired a group out of boston and and again we were doing about 10 12 million at this time and uh i put together this huge press kit and uh you know a dog and pony show in in booklets and samples and everything and 
we said, okay, my, my goal was to be on the front page of the lifestyle section of USA Today magazine, right? Because that's so influential. Okay. So we started off in Boston and New York and Philadelphia, and yeah, we worked our way all the way across to Chicago, which was the buying office of uh, of uh, you know the fashion editor office of of USA Today, and. We got there and I had a, an appointment for three o'clock and, and we got there at five to three and announced ourselves and, and, and Margaret comes, you know, she was a fashion editor, comes running and says, oh, Brian, I'm so sorry. I've double booked. I, I have to be on a conference call at three. I've got five minutes. And, you know, my, my wow. presentation was like 45 minutes. So I knew I wasn't going to be sure. able to do it. So I just instinctively... And this, again, is an entrepreneur. You, you have to learn to pivot. Uh, or most entrepreneurs, it's instinctive. You just pivot. I thought, oh, what can I do? And so I instinctively reached down into my briefcase, and I had this tatty old folder, where, which I always carried, and it had all of these celebrity photos in it from, you know, that I'd collected over the years. And I saw, so, well, you know, here, this is who's wearing the product. There's Tom Petty and Neil Young and, Sting and Patrick Swayze and all these, all these Hollywood people, Brooke Shields. And, and then I got to this one photo, which was um, Pamela Anderson in a red swimsuit on the set of Baywatch, you know, wearing these tall Uggs. Sure. And I quickly flicked by that because that's nobody wears boots like that. And Margaret goes, go, go back, go back. Who is that? And, and, and she goes, oh, my God. And she took the name of the tabloid magazine because it was from a, a London newspaper and the name, of the, and the, name okay. of the photographer. She said, do you have a press kit? And I said, yep. And she says, great, got to go. And that whole thing took less than four minutes, right? Sure. So I totally knew we blew it. And the next day I was in the airport in Chicago heading back to San Diego and I bought a coffee in USA Today and I got to the lifestyle section and there's this full page, front page, and all the second page was, was this incredible expose on sheepskin boots and the shearling footwear category and how big, and, and you know, it was just this amazing story about uh, how the brand had been, you know, the Ugg brand had been around and, and she, and what really bummed me out was she listed all these competitors that she could find. And uh, I hated seeing that. But anyway, when I got back to California, um, I drove up to the office and I found out that the phones had been out of control all day with retailers wanting to know how to stock the product and consumers wanting to know where and how they could buy the product. You know, So it was the most unbelievably successful campaign and that was when we started to get the national coverage two, two things happened one is that all the big department store buyers that i've been trying to get into who, who wouldn't even look at ug because we were such a weird little shoe sure. uh suddenly they see this thing in usa today and they go oh my god it's a category it's shielding we've got to be in it you know and so then they start researching who's the best one in the shielding category and it's always ug you know so it launched it sure. launched us into the this department store world, but the other thing it did was you know we'd been seeding all these uh, Hollywood stylists and and you know the hairdressers and the makeup artists and the wardrobe people 
and we'd been sending them free boots for a while. And when they saw all this stuff hit in USA Today, they started really bringing it out. And every time they'd be doing some movie stars here, they'd be going, well, you know, what are, they, what are you wearing? Oh, these are Ugg boots, man. They're so fabulous. And, well, can you get me some? You know, and so this, this whole Hollywood thing started to take off. And before you knew it, it's in, you know, when you look at, uh, Us magazine or People magazine, you know, you, you see all the all the stars on the streets caught wearing UGG boots, you know, and it became this amazing sure. fashion item, and uh, sure. so that was, uh, you know, that was huge in taking the product from being this little niche sporting goods type thing into a whole fashion industry. Sure, and and then. Walk me through kind of selling to uh, uh, Deckers and kind of how that came to be because it was kind of interesting how you you ran into the founder. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, it got to be about fifteen. We we'd done about fifteen million in sales, and and we finished up the, you know one of the, one or two trade shows, and the sales reps were sending orders in already for next season. It looked like we were going to have a twenty million dollar season the next year and this is in feb this is in like february march and uh i immediately knew oh my god i i only just survived last year how the hell can i find another four three or four million bucks capital for product and i knew i was i was just getting so big that i i couldn't find people to take the risk and so I was dreading the success we had, <laughs> which, which is an unusual <laughs> thing for an entrepreneur to say, but I was, I was dreading how successful we'd become because of these financial problems. And uh, it, it was still seasonal. So, so, you know, venture capitalists hated it. Banks hated it because they didn't want to throw out all this money and then have to sit around all summer and hope they get repaid, you know? So, so sure. uh, I, I was at the airport in Atlanta in the baggage claim section and I looked way down the other end of the thing and I saw a buddy of mine, his name was Doug Otto and I'd known him since, because he started his company, Deckers, uh, with these triple Decker sandals that were you know, really high neoprene, like high heel thongs uh, or flip-flops, sure. you know, and... Uh, He'd built that over the years into, uh, you know, by licensing different products into a pretty big business. And then he took the Tiva uh, sandal license. And that was so big and so popular when the outdoor market took off that he yep. took his company public. And and right. when I saw him in the airport, I, I knew, oh, my God, Doug, he's, he's sitting on 25, 30 million bucks, you know, from his public offering. And, uh, sure. And I, I thought, oh my God, it's perfect. His business dies every every winter, and our business our right. business dies every summer. And I thought it, it's sure. so perfect. And because we'd known each other on the road, we were crisscrossing each other on the road for years and years and years, and we knew each other really well. And we used to joke about, you know, hey, why don't you buy me out? You know, ah, oh, you can't afford me. You you can't <laughs> afford me. You know, all that sort of stuff. And uh, 
And so I, I walked up to, to him at the, at the baggage claim. You know, he saw me, and we, we high-fived, and I said, hey, Doug, if ever we're going to do it, now's the time. And we had the, you know, the accountants talking to each other that afternoon. That, that's how fast it went. And, uh, yeah, amazing. so it was like weeks, just a couple of weeks, we, we, we actually did the, signed the deal, and then it took about a year to process that into uh, action. But, you know, and I kept running the business for that next year. And that, that was an exciting year because we, uh, we, this is a bit of a segue. I hope you don't mind, but right, no, no. we, we, uh, we had, uh, been doing like, like I have this, this saying that, you know, I, I, yeah, luck is one thing, but I really believe in karma, you know? And so we, we'd been okay. shipping product to this woman in England for oh, five or six years. It was a pain in the butt because she, she wanted 20 different pairs to go to 20 different people, which meant 20 different customs invoices. And oh, yeah, it, was, it was a nightmare. But we did it because sure. this lady was, was Trudy Styler, who's the wife of Sting, you know? And, uh, sure. and so because we wanted to be cool and be with her, uh, we we kept doing it and and then the karmic return was one day she called up and said brian oh my god i've just been to a seminar it's changed my world and i i want the most perfect pair of size whatever tall sand ug boots and and do you have a pen here's where to ship them and i, I said yep she goes oprah care of oprah winfrey show you know <laughs> in chicago and, and and so we sent these boots off and then that over the next couple of years, um, I, you know, I started working with the, the Deckers people and they took it on and they, they really capitalized on the Oprah connection. And we were, you know, two years in a row, we were on Oprah's best picks for Christmas, which was 20 minutes of full wow. on tea, nothing but Uggs for 20 minutes on the Oprah show. Uh, and you, you could not, you know, no way we could have ever paid for that type of advertising. And that's what took that's sure. what took it international, and so uh, even though I got out of it and I, and I cashed out, which was fantastic because you know I I had reached my level of competence in, as an entrepreneur, and I hate being in in you know big companies, and I knew a public company would cripple me or, or suffocate me. So it was, and, and also I didn't have the skill set to take it out to all these department stores. I, I was more of a boots on the ground guy. And so Decker's, Decker's uh, personnel took it on and they took it up to be, you know, it's been in the billions for the last five, six years now, you know, and yeah, that's yeah. great. And so it was, it was a perfect time for me to exit and it was a perfect time for the brand. It was like handing off your, your, your daughter to, to, to the future <laughs> husband, you know, and then watching, watching them sure. grow and thrive. It was a fantastic, and so sure. I'm still. I still feel I'm. I'm. You know. I'm. I'm still the founder, and you can never get fired as the founder. You know. And Ugg is always sure, always sure. feels like my baby, and so the more success it has, the more proud I am. I, I have no attachment to it from a possessive, you know, sense at all. It's just I just love how how successful it's been. Sure. No, I, I think that's great. And I, I this kind of is actually a great thing to kind of close the show with is you do kind of speaking and coaching now. And so walk me through kind of 
how you're helping and giving back to others kind of coming up sure. through kind of the entrepreneur channel. Sure, sure. Well, on the, the coaching first, um, I, I do very specific coaching. In fact, I, I, like, I don't help entrepreneurs start out with a new idea and take it to market. Um, but, but I okay. do love helping people who are in the most difficult phase where they've been in business a few years they're successful and they're being crippled by their success just like all those years that I was. And so, sure. in fact, that their biggest issue is they can't get the money for the manufacturing to handle the increase in sales that they have, right? And that's sure. a horrific pro problem for every entrepreneur. And so that's where I, I find I'm really good at, at identifying people that there's – one uh, girl that I'm uh, helping, uh, and she has a brand called Sash. It's a, it's a shoulder bag made out of this beautiful fine lamb leather. And, and when I first met her, I went, oh, my God, she's in Chapter 5 of my book. You know, I've got to save her from Chapter 7 through 10, you know. Um, and so they're the types of people I can help. And she's doing a phenomenal business. You, you can find that on line it's thesashbag.com and she's doing a huge business on the internet right now and uh we, i have a lot of fun with that business so so people like in that stage where they've been through through gotcha. the process they know they've got a successful business they just cannot finance the success they're the ones that i feel that i have the best uh qualifications to to uh um, help and then as far as the speaking goes, I wrote that book um, about UG, and it's it's like a hundred more stories of what we've just talked about, you know? Totally, yeah. And, yeah. and it's like all, all my philosophy comes out like, you know, the, the quickest way for a tadpole to become a frog is live every, every day happily <laughs> as a tadpole, you know? Uh, I, and, and so because of that book, I get to speak on, you know, people just want me to come and speak. And, and so I use all those quotes and the, the tadpole quotes, one of the favorites that people will come back to me a year later and they'll, they won't remember much about what I talked about, but they remember the tadpole, you know, because it's such phenomenal philosophy. And, you know, you know, you, you just got to stick in there and keep doing When I read the Nike book, you know, um, about yep. Phil, Phil Knight. Yep. He did it, you know, when I, I, I remember Reebok did it when I was, you know, building that, my brand, they were building their brand. You know, you just got to hang in there and hang in there and do it. And so that's pretty much the message I talk about from the stage. And, and I love speaking to entrepreneurial groups or, um, you know, you know, businesses that are up to, you know, up to five to 10 million. And I, do, I never have a single graph or a chart or anything on my PowerPoints. I, I, I am not that type of speaker. I tell stories and I talk about sure. philosophical issues and, and um, how, to, how to, you know, run a business and what to expect as an entrepreneur. It, it is not how to improve your bottom line or how to be a better leader. I, I mean, those books just, uh, you know, there's so many of them. I just, you know, just glaze over. But uh, so, my, you know, the book has led to the speaking and the speaking I love um, coming off. And, and, you know, I'll have people come up to me afterwards and say, oh, oh my God, Brian, I, 
I was going to give up my business this week, but I just realized I'm still in the infancy stage and I'm, I'm going to hang in there, you know? Sure. And, and I'm, I'm, <laughs> That's awesome, I'm just though. about choking up telling you that because it, it is so meaningful for me to know that I reach people in that manner. Totally. And, uh, that's great. So that's why I love the speaking. Uh, and it's, uh, it's not work. It's just pleasure. And, uh, you know, as long as somebody is affected every time I come off the stage, I'm a happy guy. Sure. So do you invest at all or you're not in that at all? A little bit, but, uh, you know, okay. I, I mostly invest in myself. And I always have. Yeah. I've always envied people who had Apple stock and, you know, all, all this stuff. But, you know, I invested all my money in UG, uh, and that paid off in, in the sure. millions, you know, much more than these other people who right. bought Apple stock. Um, so, so really, I like investing in things that I know I control. So I'm not like an angel investor or a, uh, you know, venture capitalist or anything, although I do work with them all the time. I mean, I, gotcha. I uh, whenever I see a client that I think, uh, could really use it. I make the introductions to the angels. Got you. No, that's that's great. But Brian, sadly, we're coming to the end of the show. So let's close with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself okay. and the Thanks book. Thanks a lot. Okay, my, my website is uh, briansmithspeaker.com. Although I am in a redo, which in about a month, that website will be uggfounder.com, uggfounder.com. And you can get me there okay. and you can find the book there online and or else you can just go to Amazon. But it's called The Birth of a Brand. And uh, it's doing really, really well on Amazon. And as I said, it's just yeah. this Oh, everybody who reads it says, "Oh my God, I can't believe how honest you are!" And it, it was like it, it, yeah, it was totally. like a page turner. And I, <laughs> I th- yeah, very I much. I think so. it's because they're not sure I'm going to be around next chapter. You know? <laughs> oh yeah, very much so. Like I, I said this kind of earlier, like what, before we kind of got started recording, is it was like brutally honest, and not in a bad way. Like in the way that, like you talked about how, like you know, even like early on when you, you, you first came to California, like the house you lived in burnt down yeah. and you talked about kind of, you know, the struggles of just like almost giving up a handful of times, oh, right? Time, and yeah. like, it was like very, very real where I think in some ways you're just like, oh, like somebody else that has a, a global brand went through the stuff that you're going through. And I think people find comfort in that, including myself, right? Yeah. Because working on a startup myself and there's days that you're just like, man, I should just give this Isn't all that up the and, truth? Yeah. You know, forget about it and do something else. But, you know, and so I got a lot out of the book and, and really kind of glad to have you on the show. I, you know, hopefully we can do this yeah. again. And I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on and the hey, show. It's my pleasure, Kevin. I really had a good time. I think we, we had, had a good talk. Yeah, man. All right. Well, you have a good rest of your day and we'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Thanks, man. Bye. Thanks for listening. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com and keep them for the future.